know, one of the things that I love about the New Testament is that it's just raw and honest in its portrayal of the main characters. It's ready to show their flaws and their failures as, alongside their successes. And the point of this really is to reveal the grace of the God about whom it is written. It's not really about the characters, but rather the God that's at work in their lives. And so in this series, I actually want to look at three incredible stories of redemption, three times where we see God really at work in a person's life and doing something incredible with them through this redemption. And so the first character that we're going to look at today is the Apostle Paul, probably one of my favorites, apart from Jesus, of course, but certainly I think my favorite character of the whole Bible, um, really just one of the most influential people of human history. I mean, really, we have a Western world today because of the writings of this man. But I want to look at just the turning point in his life, that Damascus Road encounter, and, and really what that was about, what actually happened that day that brought about that change, and, and really what the change was in Paul's thinking, and really in the direction of his life that came about as a result of that. Something that's really remarkable about Paul is that we actually don't know a lot about him. Uh, for somebody who really shaped the Western world as we know it, we actually just don't know much about his life. Now, this wasn't actually unusual for people in the ancient world. Um, it's you, you don't normally write anything down about a person in that time unless they've done something incredible. And then you only really write down what they did. There's no real concern in the ancient world about their early life and their, you know, what their childhood was like and where they lived and where they went to school. No one really cared about any of that unless it directly connected or gave explanation for why they became the person they became. What were some of the key uh, events in their life that helped to shape them to become the hero that they eventually became? But for the most part, you don't really worry about that stuff. The point of uh, biography in the ancient world was just to write down the key things that they did, the things that were memorized about them. Uh, and so it makes sense that we don't know a lot about Paul. We don't know really when he was born or necessarily where he came from, what his childhood was like. Um, we, just, we just don't know that apart from a few little glimpses that he gives us that we can sort of unpack a little bit to try to make sense of maybe where he came from or really just sort of guess uh, sort of where he came from and, and what might have happened uh, in the early years of his life. Um, what we can, what, what's generally agreed is that Paul was born probably about 5 AD. Um, so we're talking maybe 10 years after the birth of Jesus. And so he's, he's obviously of that generation, um, sort of around the turn, what becomes the new era. And he's born, he says, or he's from, at least he says, in a place called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is kind of in southern Turkey, in, in modern-day southern Turkey. Uh, and he's, what have been, he was born a Hellenistic Jew. Now, just to quickly explain what that means, in the first century, you've got sort of two different categories of Jewish people. You've got the Jews that live in Judea and Galilee, so in the traditional land, um, and they're, they're what what are known as Hebraic Jews, people that are living in the original land. Now, those particular Jews would have been Aramaic-speaking as their primary language. So Jesus, his primary language was Aramaic. Uh, and then you've got the Jews that live outside of that, that, that realm, what we call the Diaspora Jews, the Jews that uh, were scattered during the initial 
exile, all the way back into the Babylonian exile, and just never returned. Uh, and so they remained in and spread out through the cities of the ancient world all around the Mediterranean and really just kind of became uh, a culture a culture to their particular region. They, they remained Jewish. They, they kept their unique Jewish a sense of Jewishness and their practices and, you know, things like circumcision, for example, or observing um, Sabbath and maintaining kosher, uh, of course, you know, living according to Scripture, to Torah. They did the things that made them uniquely Jewish. The difference was they just didn't live back in the land. And so as much as possible, they tried to sort of set themselves into uh, their own little enclave of Jewish community where they could maintain their traditional practices and traditional ideology. And so these particular Jews would have been Greek speakers, as was the the language of the whole region. That would have been their primary language. And at the same time, they would be continually engaged with Gentiles. They would be continually sort of within that realm. And so where you wherever you find yourself in the ancient world, you're going to find diaspora Jews and more in some places than in other places. You know, we talked uh, last week about when Paul was in Philippi that you didn't actually find a Jewish community there. And so there were places that didn't have many Jews and there were places that had many, many Jews. In fact, there would have been numerically more diaspora Jews than there were Hebraic Jews back in the homeland. But they always were connected back to Jerusalem. They would still send the temple tax back to Jerusalem to fund the temple there. Uh, and so there was always an, an affinity. They would make pilgrimage trips, at, at least, you know, at some stage in their life. And so, uh, you know, we find on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where you've got all of these Jewish people from all around the world who have come there for the Passover and then stuck around for Pentecost a couple of weeks later. Uh, but what was sort of unique about them was they they sort of took on the cultural flavor of their local region and there was always there's always sort of a I wouldn't say a compromise but there was always sort of a, a another f- sort of additional flavor to uh, their particular Jewish faith in the same way that wherever you go in the world you're going to find Christians and the, although we share the same core values and core beliefs as Christians we also take on some of the flavor of the region that we live in. Um, we, there's, you know, whether you're in Australia or in uh, in America or Africa or Asia, wherever you might find yourself, your Christianity might look a little bit different where you are having sort of absorbed some of the local culture around you. And so Paul is a, a diaspora Jew. He's from Tarsus. And what we know about Tarsus are a couple of things. Number one, is that Tarsus has a very large linen working trade. Uh, they're, they're just well known for their production of goods, of uh, particularly of um, material goods like linen. And so what we do know about Paul is that he was, well, what you read in the book of Acts is that he was a leather worker. Now, oh, well, actually specifically what it will say is that he's a tent maker. Now, tents were part of what Paul would have done as a part of his trade. Tents were made of leather, and so technically what Paul was was a leather worker. That was his actual trade. It's kind of like saying that, you know, you're somebody who builds housing frames 
Well, that's true, but you're a carpenter. That's your trade, and there's many things you can build out of wood. One of the things that you happen to make would be house frames. And so the trade itself, what Paul was, was a leather worker. And so what that would have meant was that he made tents, but he maybe also made bags and horse saddles and shoes and, uh, you know, you name it, or anything that was made out of leather, which was a lot of stuff. Well, that's what Paul would have been involved in. And so for Paul, this was his trade. Now, where he learned that, well, very likely Tarsus, but we can never be sure. We just know that he was that. So did he learn it as a young man, um, as a part of his education? Did he do it because that's what his parents did? We just don't know. There's just no possible way of knowing. Did he pick up the trade um, after he became a Christian and so sort of had something there to support himself? Now, one of the advantages of being a leather worker is that it's a very mobile trade. You know, if you think about a blacksmith, a metal worker, They need to have uh, furnaces all the time. They need to have lots of hammers and anvils. You can't just be a mobile blacksmith. You have to set up shop somewhere and that's where you're going to be based from from there on in. Well, for a leather worker, it's a different story. A leather worker really only needs to have some knives, some needles, some thread, just the very basics. I mean, you could carry your whole toolkit around in a small leather bag and wherever you go, you can find work and you can, you can be useful wherever you, you happen to find yourself. And so this is the ideal sort of trade that uh, Paul would need. Somebody who's going to be traveling a lot, going around preaching wherever he goes, uh, he needs to be able to support himself in many of those places. And so this sort of trade is going to be absolutely ideal for him. So again, we don't know. We don't know how he got this trade, when he got it, why he sort of picked up this particular one. Um, we just know that he was. The leather working was the thing that, uh, that Paul did. Now, what we also know about Tarsus is that they had a large Jewish population. And what that simply equates to are lots of synagogues. And so for Paul, he, was, he grew up very aware of his Jewish heritage. He would have been very well trained in his Jewish faith, and that would have just come as a result of being part of that community. And this is a probably, I guess, an obvious thing to say because we see Saul, the persecutor, very passionate about his God and about this faith that he was raised in. And so that 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 would certainly have been in large part because of this upbringing in a in a very large Jewish population. But another thing that we know about Tarsus is that it was a university city. Now, there are several key university cities in the ancient world, the obvious one being Athens. But apart from that, you've got Alexandria, which actually perhaps was the largest university, <clears throat> the largest university city that there was. Athens was a um, sorry, Athens and Alexandria were probably the two leading university cities. And when we mean what like a modern university city where people will travel to that place in order to do their education. But Tarsus was up there as probably the third biggest university city, which is quite a significant thing. Because what that means is much like a modern university city today, where you're always just surrounded by educated people and and educators. Uh, And so thinking too that universities in the ancient world aren't 
established buildings like we have today or large grounds that have lots of buildings and classrooms in them. What we're talking about university cities are, or universities are the teacher itself. So think about when Jesus calls his disciples, he's creating a university in the ancient sense. Now you would have had some gymnasiums, uh, the, the, some, some sort of dedicated buildings for the purpose, but it wasn't, we're not talking about, you know, the University of Harvard, for an example. What you're talking about is the university of a particular teacher. And so a teacher would be sort of an independent educator and would have his own students that would follow him around and he would be educating. So Tarsus is a place that attracts these sorts of people and these sorts of students. And so for Paul, what that means growing up is that he's always surrounded with an educator with an educational culture, um, even if he doesn't necessarily sit under the teaching of one of these educators, you're just kind of, you're always immersed in it. Even just by osmosis, you're going to pick up the culture and the educated sort of nature of that place. And so already in his upbringing, what that means for Paul is that he's just sort of in that type of environment. But it also means that he very likely had, well, he, he, would, have, he would have clearly had uh, an early education. There was sort of three stages of education in the ancient world, and much like today's uh, sort of modern education, where the younger kids would go and just learn their ABCs. They, as very young kids, they would um, just get a very basic education in, you know, just how to spell their name, you know, how to do some basic maths, the very simple skills that you learn at a young age. And for most parents, that's really all they could afford. If they couldn't afford an education at all, it's going to be something very rudimentary like that. If the parents could afford more than that, then they would send them off to a grammarian, somebody who was going to teach them the more advanced literary skills. Uh, and it was more like a liberal arts sort of high school where you would learn athletics, you would learn uh, reading and writing, you would learn arithmetic, you'd learn astrology, you'd learn so, sort of the, the more uh, holistic sorts of education. In fact, the Greek name for this level of training was the word was inkiklios paideia. Paideia is the word for education. It's also the word for culture. It's one and the same thing. So to be to receive an education is to be encultured. You're learning what it means to be a sophisticated person in this world. And then the other word they attached attached to that is the word inkiklios, which just means a circular or a holistic education. So inkiklios Paideia. Now, it's a word you'd be familiar with because it's where we get our word encyclopedia from. So this sort of idea of this holistic education. And so it's very likely that Paul would have received this in Kiklios Paideia at, in, in Tarsus. He would have had, even if it was within a Jewish synagogue, it's still he still would have absorbed a lot of Greek culture and poetry and philosophy and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and so we can sort of see that coming through in his familiarity later on with the Greek world and with the Greek way of thinking. Now, one of the remarkable things about Paul is that we actually don't know his whole name. So here's a guy who has helped to shape the Western world as we know it, and we don't even know his full name. Now, what he tells us in Acts 22 is that he's a Roman citizen, and that's an important thing to have. That's an important status that Paul has with him. 
Now, there's different ways that you can become a Roman citizen. Uh, you can do something good for the Romans, some sort of particular benefit to the Roman Empire, and as a reward, they'll give you Roman citizenship. Uh, you can also um, uh, be a freed slave. Whenever a slave was freed uh, from slavery, they would be automatically granted Roman citizenship as a part of their freedom. In fact, it was one of the upsides of being freed from your slavery, apart from being freed from slavery, uh, you would receive Roman citizenship, which, which gave you a very high status. Uh, other ways might be that your whole city, for example, might be given Roman citizenship as well. So there were different ways that you could receive it. But the most important way to become a citizen was to be born a citizen. And this is exactly what Paul was. He tells the uh, the guard who was about to flog him, he says, actually, I was born a, born a citizen, which is the highest sort of status when it comes to being a Roman citizen. To be born one is means that you come from a family of Roman citizens, which is a very important thing to be part of. Uh, for Paul then, he was born a citizen. Now, what that would obviously imply is that his parents were Roman citizens. Now, how did they become citizens? Well, we don't know because we don't know who they were. We don't know anything about them whatsoever. But if we can maybe make an educated guess, one of the uh, most disruptive things that happened to the Jewish people was when Pompey, the, the general Pompey, came in in 63 BC and conquered Jerusalem. And so that ended what was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And so he conquers Jerusalem and takes back to Rome with him a lot of Jewish slaves. Amongst the many other slaves that he took with him from that region, a lot of them were Jewish, which means that, and so if we sort of take this back generationally, that's sort of Paul's grandparents, maybe his great-grandparents. So they all go back into slavery, but they you don't stay in slavery. It's typical that when you're a slave, you're usually released after you're sort of up in your 30s, maybe after 30 years of being a slave, you're going to be released. And as a, re, as a result of that, you're going to become a Roman citizen. So it's very possible then that one of Paul's ancestors was taken from, uh, from Jerusalem and then brought back then has become freed, has received their citizenship, and so then subsequently everybody that was born to them has been born with Roman citizenship, which would carry on down to Paul. But importantly, being a Roman citizen meant that Paul would have had a Roman name, apart from the privilege of getting to wear a toga, which only a Roman citizen could do. And so when you see, when you imagine Paul out in places like Corinth or in Galatia and these different regions, you would have to imagine him wearing a toga. Uh, he wouldn't have, he, he, particularly if he's preaching into a Gentile audience, uh, he's going to, to want to assimilate with them or at least connect with them as much as possible. But because he's a Roman citizen, what it means is that he has a Roman name. Now, the Roman name is unique. It's a three-part name. Now, you've like a modern name, you've got a given name, a first name. So in my case, it's Adam. Uh, and so that's what the name that's given to you, which sort of defines you amongst the family. Now, the thing about Roman names is that there wasn't many to choose from. We're talking like 15 names to choose from. Now, to put that into perspective, I mean, you look at a modern baby name book and we've got four kids and the amount of names you have to choose from just to find a name for your child is ridiculous we were talking encyclopedias worth of names for the romans they had like 15 to choose from and so things like if you take for example gaius julius caesar so we always think of julius caesar or even just caesar 
Gaius was his family name, or his, sorry, his given name. But everybody in his family was named Gaius because there wasn't that many to choose from. So Gaius was pretty much what all of the men in the family were named. Now, Julius was his family name. That was his, um, that, that's sort of his tribal name going all the way back to the founding of Rome. And this is what made Julius Caesar or one of the uh, chief claims to fame that he has. One of the things that's most significant about him is that he comes from one of the original Roman families. He's part of the Julii clan. Uh, and so Gaius Julius, Julius being the family name, well, that just means that every male in the family is named Gaius Julius. So how then do you tell them apart? Well, you give them a nickname, some sort of unique name to them, and that's what they become known by. And so Caesar means hairy, which is kind of ironic later on when he starts to go bald. Uh, and so this is, what's, this is what d distinguishes you from all of the other men in the family is this kind of nickname that gets added later on. Well, what does that mean for Paul? Well, we know that there was he actually had two names. He was Saul and he was also Paul. So at, so at a certain point during his ministry, he starts to go by the name of Paul. So where, where did that come from? What was that name? Well, that would have probably been the sort of nickname or the cognomen in the same way that Caesar was. Paulos was probably his cognomen. And so what his prynome and his sort of first given name was, we don't know. And what his family name, this gnomon, what was that? We don't know. And so it's blank, blank, Paulus. And so really the only name that we know him by, we have of him, is this sort of nickname that he takes with him. So then when does the Saul come from? What, what's that all about? Well, what his parents probably would have done is having given him the this this Roman name, they probably added to that a an ethnic name, a supernomen. The idea of this is that it kind of keeps the the Jewish uniqueness of him as a part of his name, and so they add to the end of his name Saulus Saul. Now, what was that about? What's the, where does the name Saul come from? Well, Paul as we might remember, was from the tribe of Benjamin. So really there's only two tribes that are left in the, in the first century from the original 12 tribes of Israel, and those being Benjamin and Judah. Now the reason why it's only those two tribes is because they were from the southern kingdom that went into exile into Babylon that actually survived. So he's from that tribe. He's from Benjamin. Now the most famous Benjamite, the most famous person from the tribe of Benjamin was King Saul the one that came before David. And so to give him this name Saul is to remind him of his Jewish heritage, but specifically his heritage as a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul uses these names. We first of all meet him as Saul. The reason we meet, meet him as Saul is because we meet him amongst the Jewish audience. We meet him amongst the Jewish people. And so he's, when he's with the Jews, he's going to use his Jewish name. Uh, he wants to be able to connect with them. That's his... Jewish identity. But it's when he goes into the Gentile world and starts preaching to Gentiles that he starts to go by the name of Paul. Why Paul? Well, that's his Greek name. That's his, that's his name as a Roman citizen. And so he's able to sort of bounce between the two names because they're both his names, but they both reflect different sides of his identity. On the one side, he is a Roman citizen. He's from, uh, he's a Hellenistic Jew. He's, he's got that 
Greek sort of element to his culture, uh, but at the same time, he's also thoroughly Jewish. He's a he's raised as a as a Jewish boy in a Jewish family and educated specifically in. Uh, the Jewish way of life. And so he can do both worlds and he has the different names to reflect those two different worlds. Probably the the most well-known thing about Paul is that he was a Pharisee. Now, he tells us at one point that he was educated by a man named Gamaliel here in in Jerusalem. Well, what happened? How, How did that come about? We don't know. Again, we can only speculate. He grew up in Tarsus, and so we know, as we just talked about, he was raised in a very Greek city, and, and a city famous not just for its education, but specifically for its Greek education. And so either, even just by osmosis, he's going to have absorbed a lot of that Greek culture. But then he says that he was educated by Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And what does that mean? Well, that would have been the equivalent of his university education. And so rather than staying in Tarsus to go to, to do university, uh, he goes down to Jerusalem. Now, that in and of itself would have been quite, an, quite a venture, quite an expensive venture, as it would be today to move countries or to send your kids into another country to, to, uh, to study in an, an elite college. This would have been an expensive venture. Whether his parents came with him or not, we, we just simply don't know. Uh, but if they've clearly been the ones to fund this, and so that would at least indicate to us <clears throat> something of wealth, something of quite substantial means in order to be able to do this. And so he goes then and studies with Gamaliel. Um, what's the significance of that? Who is this Gamaliel? Well, we actually meet Gamaliel later on in... Uh, in, in Acts, he's the guy when they're trying to figure out what to do with the with the apostles. They've arrested them and they're trying to decide, you know, do we punish them? Do we let them go? They don't quite know how to deal with this new Christian movement yet. And so it's Gamaliel who stands up. And when he stands up, everybody listens. Everyone stops to hear what Gamaliel has to say, which tells us straight away that this is a man who's highly respected amongst the Sanhedrin. He's a guy that when he talks, people listen. And it's him that says, hey, look, just don't do anything. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if this is God or if it's not God. If it is God, you don't want to be pushing pushing back against God. And if it's not from God, then God's the one who's going to stop it. He's the one who's going to deal with it. And so they agree, okay, we'll just, we'll we'll let the God, we'll we'll flog them, (laughs) but then we'll let them go. And we'll just tell them with a warning, don't ever preach this message again. And that's a different story, but we know how that ends up. So Gamaliel is a very highly respected Pharisee. He's, he's amongst the Sanhedrin, a, a respected mem- member of that um, sort of political or sort of um, judicial body that the, that the Sanhedrin was. Uh, but he's also a very highly respected Pharisee. Now, who were the Pharisees? Well, just a quick history of, of who they were. The idea that the, the, the background of the Pharisees is that in the time that they sort of came about, maybe about the second century BC, the Jewish people living in and around Jerusalem were becoming increasingly Greek in the way that they were thinking. They were living under Greek occupation and they just, things just weren't going very well. They were, you know, in a, a people who were supposed to be living according to Torah, according to law, were becoming increasingly Greek in the way they were thinking. And, and this was a real problem. 
And so what the Pharisees were was something of a response to this. They were more of a sort of a fundamentalist movement uh, trying to lead the people back to faithfulness to God. And what they were seeing amongst the people was they were being led astray by the leaders, by the priests, uh, and they were just sort of taking them to a place that was not faithful, not loyal to their God. And so what the Pharisees were trying to do was to bring them back to that place. But there was also a desire amongst the Jewish people specifically to, to get their land back, to, to overthrow these rulers who were living in their land, forcing them to pay taxes to live in their own land. And so the Pharisees were trying to, um, trying to deal with that tension. You know, we're, we're, living under the, we're living under occupation in our own land. What do we do with it? How do we respond to that? And so the Pharisees sort of has had some different approaches to, to how to deal with them, particularly later on when we see the Romans there. What do we do about these Romans that are in our land, these pagans who are uh, occupying our land, making us pay taxes to live here? Um, how do we respond to them? And so there's a couple of different branches of these Pharisees that emerged uh, in, order, in response to uh, in, in response to this crisis. The one side of thinking was just let God figure it out. Just stand back and God will be, if, you know, God will vindicate himself. God will deal with these, uh, these Romans and, and he'll sort of make, he sort of cleanse the land himself. And so this is sort of the idea that we see in Gamaliel. Gamaliel is of sort of this, um, of what we know to be uh, of the Hillelite faction, this idea that says, look, God's in control. He knows what he's doing. And we just have to sit back and patiently wait for God to do whatever it is that he's going to do. <clears throat> but there was also a different school called the, uh, of the Shammaiite faction. And their idea was God acts when we act. God will do, God will do his will, but we need to get going and, and, and start the process and he'll support what it is that we do. If we're doing the will of God, then he'll vindicate us in what we do. And so this is their approach to it. And really what that boils down to in the case of Roman overlords is take up arms, take up the swords and fight back against the Romans. And because we're doing this for God, he's going to vindicate us. He's going to give us victory when we do that. So two totally, totally opposite approaches to the situation. On the one hand, just sit back, relax, just let God take care of things. On the other hand, take up arms and fight and God will support us in what it is that we do. So Gamaliel's clearly on the side of just take a back seat and just let God do his thing. But what we see later on in Paul or in Saul is the very opposite. We see in Saul... This, um, this more sort of Shammaiite response, which is, no, we need to actually get on the front foot and put down this, uh, put down this opposition. Now, where we see this manifesting in Saul's life is in his response to the Christians. Uh, and so these new, this new movement, this, new, the, this way that they call it, um, this is a direct threat to the way of to the way of God or to, to the way that the Jewish people are meant to live. The idea is that you need to be faithful to God. You need to be, remain faithful to Torah. And these Christians clearly aren't doing that because they're saying that this Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, when clearly he was not the Messiah. 
And so for Saul, the only way to respond to this is to actively go out there and start to persecute them, even to kill them if that's what's required, and God will vindicate us in those actions. And so then when we meet Saul in the book of Acts, what we meet initially is a zealot. He's a Pharisee of this Shammaiite way of thinking who is convinced that it's his responsibility to lead the way and get rid of any threats to Judaism, be it the Romans or, in this case, the Christians. Now, what was the threat that the Christians posed? Well, as far as a guy like Saul is concerned, they're heretics, they're apostates, they're preaching a false message and leading astray the Jewish people from being faithful true to Yahweh. And again, this whole idea of the Pharisees is to help the people to maintain their faithfulness. That was what was got the, that was what got them in trouble in the first place. The whole reason why they went into exile is that they forgot about the law, they lived their own way and started to worship other gods. And so as a result of that, God took them into exile as he said he would back in Deuteronomy. And so what he sees in these Christians are a group of people trying to do the same thing again. They are living contrary to the law, but most importantly, they're saying something as crazy as that this Jesus Christ character is God. Well, that's a problem. That is bringing us right back into the idolatry that got us in trouble in the first place. Now, on what basis does is Saul convinced that Jesus is not who these Christians say he was? Well, in Deuteronomy 21-23, there's this obscure little sort of statement that says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So what does that mean? Well, clearly, if you're hung up on a tree or up on a stake, you're cursed. Cursed by who? Well, cursed by God. And so when the Christians are out there saying, hey, that Jesus that was crucified, he's in fact the Messiah, then it simply doesn't fit with Scripture. We know, according to Deuteronomy, that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So how on earth could he possibly be the Messiah if at the same time he is cursed by God? And so for Saul, this is the basis of his persecution. This is what he's using when he goes in to, and he's you know, interrogating Christians and they say, you know, he's the Messiah. So, uh, 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 there's a verse right here that clearly states that he cannot be the Messiah because he's cursed by God. How could the Messiah, the one sent by God, at the same time, be cursed by that same God. It's just not possible. And so therefore, you are apostates and you need to repent, you need to recant from this message that you're preaching or else you're going to face much more serious consequences. And so then it's on this basis that he goes and persecutes the Christians and he's getting quite serious about it. Uh, to the extent, as we know, he gets letters from the Sanhedrin to go up to Damascus to persecute Christians up there. He's not satisfied just to persecute them in Jerusalem. He wants to go and persecute them also in other cities, in other towns. And feeling that he has this mandate to do this, he's got this scripture which clearly says, hey, you know, I'm uh, the, the cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. He's got permission now from the Sanhedrin. Uh, let's go. Well, of course, it's on the road to Damascus that he has this encounter with Jesus. Now, uh, you may have heard it said that Paul was knocked off his horse 
and in this particular encounter. Maybe you, you think that, maybe that's actually the image you have in your mind. Maybe you've even preached that, that Paul was, or the Saul was knocked off his horse. Um, it's not true. <laughs> uh, if you actually go back and read the account in the book of Acts, there's no mention of a horse. It's actually nowhere whatsoever within the story. Uh, in fact, the idea of Paul being knocked off the horse comes from Renaissance art. In fact, it's sort of 16th and 17th century artwork, which portrays Paul being knocked off a horse. It's actually not there in the story. Um, that, that's just a little aside there. But uh, Paul has, or Saul has this encounter with Jesus Christ, and he's blinded for three days. And he has sort of this, uh, this obviously deeply moving encounter with Jesus Christ. You know, he says, you know, Lord, who are you? And I, I find this story fascinating. Here's Saul, a man devoted to God. You know, I mean, think about, I didn't mention a moment ago, but when he studies with Gamaliel, he's studying with the best of the best. Now, these universities that I talk about, even like a modern university, the, the best universities, you have to be the top students to get into. You've got to have the best grades. You've got to be the most, uh, the, the, the best of your generation to gain access to these universities. They only take the best. <clears throat> it's no different in the case of somebody like Gamaliel. He's the best of the best. He is absolutely the elite educator of his time. And so he's not going to just take everybody who wants to study with him, which is going to be everybody. He's going to be very picky about who he, who he chooses. And so to have even accepted Saul as a student says a lot about who Saul was, the quality of student and the, the level of intelligence that this guy clearly had. And so for Saul, he has this incredible encounter with Jesus, this man who is so highly educated and so sharp and smart in the ways of God. And yet when Jesus Christ, God himself, stands in front of Saul, Saul doesn't even recognize him. I mean, just, you know, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I, I, don't, I don't even know you. It's, it's really a remarkable thing to know everything that there is to know about God, to have memorized scripture and yet not even know who God is. And nevertheless, here we find ourselves, or Saul finds himself face to face with Jesus and having this deep encounter. Now, the question is what happened? What was it about that encounter that was so, that shifted Saul's thinking so radically that he was convinced as of that moment that now, Jesus actually is who these Christians say he was. What was it? Well, I think it was, and I think it's sort of been demonstrated, it was quite simple. Actually, in fact, he is the Messiah. He's not cursed. See, Saul up until this point had been saying, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, therefore Jesus is under God's curse, therefore he cannot be the Messiah. But in a moment of revelation, he's realized, oh, he was cursed. He certainly became cursed by God, but not for anything that he had done wrong. God will curse you if you break God's law, and so therefore he couldn't be the Messiah. Actually, no, he was cursed, not for what he did, but for what we did. He, was, he became God's curse for us because of our sin, not because of his sin. He became the sacrifice. And so that verse is true, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, but in this case, it doesn't apply to the person who became cursed. He became the curse for us. 
And so this was not, this was no small aha moment. This was transformational. This took the most uh, zealous persecutor of Christianity. Paul says later on of himself that he was the chief of sinners, and he wasn't kidding. He murdered Christians to now, in a moment, realize they were right all along, and actually I'm going to become their chief spokesman. This is a really incredibly remarkable momentary transformation that didn't just change his life, but actually set the course for the foundation of the Western world. I mean, we are here talking about this Christianity today because of this moment on the Damascus Road. And so what happened next? Where, Where does he go from here? He's just had his life turned upside down. What do you do now? Well, this, this event, this conversion or this the Damascus encounter took place probably around 33 or 34. So around, around about the time that Jesus was crucified. Uh, but then for the next more than decade, he just disappears. He just sort of falls off the, the face of the earth. Uh, what happened? Where did he go? Well, we just don't know. This is the crazy part. Um, you'd sort of think, well, somebody... You know, we're talking about a guy now in his late 20s. Um, you, th- you sort of think, let's, you know, he's, he's got, all, he doesn't need more education. He's He's got the message. He, he's got the calling. It's time to go. You know, let's go off and, and preach. But he doesn't. He just kind of disappears for, for more than a decade. Well, he tells us uh, later on in Galatians that he went to Arabia for three years. Uh, so maybe between about 34 and 36 AD. He goes off to Arabia, and what do you do in Arabia for three years? Well, he doesn't go to Bible college because, one, they don't exist, and, two, there's not much more learning that he needs to do at that point. Probably what he's doing at this point is preaching in synagogues. He's probably just going in there and figuring out his message. Uh, you know, you're talking about a sort of a Jewish culture that that does that figures things out through dialogue, figures things out through through argument, through discussion, through just asking questions and probing and, and going into it that way, not quietly meditating on what something might mean, but actually in discussion, figuring things out. And so he probably is doing that. He's probably just testing out, what does this mean now? What does it mean to be the people of God now through Jesus Christ. And most especially, what does it mean to be the people of God if you're not Jewish? If you're a Gentile, if you're not circumcised, if you don't do kosher, if you don't know anything even about Torah, what do those people do? What does it mean to be a Christian when you don't have that Jewish heritage? So you've got to figure all of this stuff out. And in fact, when you read Romans, if you look at the way that Romans are structured, it's very much this sort of dialogue. He's he's saying, you know, you'll ask me this question and then he'll give the answer to it. And so he's actually going through this argument with the Romans and he's the one asking and answering all the questions, but he knows the questions that these guys are going to ask. Now, where does that come from? Well, he's probably had that argument a hundred times in the past. You know, it's a bit like when these speakers get up and they, they, they do their talk and then there's a question and answer time afterwards. And they always seem to be able to answer these questions so quickly and so easily. And you think, wow, they're so smart. They're so, how do they know the answers so quickly? Well, the reality is, is they've been asked those questions a hundred times. They've got a preformed answer for that question. And so that's what they give in the moment. And so for Paul, he's been through this dialogue so many times and probably had, had already had it formulated during his time in Arabia, 
um, and then for the rest of his journeys. So about 36, he's, he sort of finishes in, finishes up in Arabia and then between about 37 and maybe 46 AD, um, we know that he's in Antioch and Tarsus. So we read about this in Acts chapter 11. Again, what's he doing there? We don't know. He's just back in Tarsus. He's back home. Um, probably doing the same thing he was doing in Arabia, probably in the synagogues, figuring out his message, preaching, uh, all this sort of thing. It's not actually until about 40, 48 AD, so some <clears throat> maybe sort of 16 years after his conversion that he begins his missionary work. So somewhere around 48, he goes off to Galatia, that, that, that first time with Barnabas, and then there's three main missionary journeys that Saul goes on, or the no, Paul now goes on. What's the most remarkable thing about this? And so I'll finish with this. The most remarkable thing I think that uh, about Paul, the thing that I, I'm so just encouraged by, Paul sets off on his first missionary journey in the in about the year 48, and then um, later on he's arrested in Jerusalem um, in probably about. 57, 58, he's arrested and then he goes through his trial and the end, he ends up in a Roman prison. But in that time, he, he does three missionary journeys. He does um, the, his trip around Galatia and then around Greece and then eventually uh, around all of Asia Minor. That entire span of time was only 10 years, 10 years of time of preaching and, and establishing churches but in that 10 years, he did the work that established the church that we're still part of today. He wrote the letters that we are still, that are in our Bibles today, just in that 10-year period. So all of this life that Paul lived, the, where all of the work was really done was in a small decade of his life. And what's even more remarkable about it is that he was in his mid-40s. By the time he got started, by the time he began this first missionary journey, he would have mainly only, only been about maybe 44, 45 years old. And all of his work took place over 10 years. And so I asked the question, what, why did it take so long? Why was it, and not Paul, that Paul was in his mid forties by the time he even got started in the real missionary work that made him so famous and actually established the Christian church. Why wait so long? Well, I think simply that it took 45 years to prepare him. All of those 45 years of life that he had to live before he started the real work was just the preparation required to get him ready for what was going to be 10 of the most tumultuous years any human could possibly ever experience. But yet in that 10 years, after 45 years of preparation, 10 years of ministry literally changed the world. That's amazing. That just that alone just absolutely blows me away. And it particularly encourages me, being 43 that I am now, um, if my life is going to follow the same trajectory as Paul's, well, I've only, I'm only just getting started. Anyway, so that's my little reflection and my just, you know, that's my little moment there. Whatever that's worth, I hope that's been encouraging and I hope that's something that you sort of got something out of what we've been talking about today. Next week, we're going to look at another great story, one of my uh, 
favorite sort of stories amongst these stories of redemption and that's the story of mark so join me for that but otherwise have a great week and we'll see you then bye-bye